Thanks for joining us for another episode of What the Faith. Today we had a deeply emotional conversation with Neil Carter. Now, Neil's a high school teacher, a writer, a speaker, a father of four, and a skeptic living in the Bible Belt. He was a former church elder with a seminary education, but now he writes mostly about the struggles of former evangelicals living in the midst of an extremely dense religious subculture. Really hope you enjoy his story and his experience and can learn a lot from it. The Bible Belt is, for most people, a region of the, of the country, of the southeastern United States. Um, it's the places where religion is the thickest, and it's the most central part of the culture. But what I usually explain to folks is the Bible Belt is really less a location, and it's more of a subculture. It's actually something that pervades American life all over the country. Anytime you get about 20 minutes outside of a city in the United States, you're back in the Bible Belt. And that's true whether you're in Washington State or in Jackson, Mississippi. But the difference is in the South, it's this way in the cities too. You know, even our metropolitan areas are governed by highly religious people and, and people for whom their faith is so central to their life that it's one of the first things they tell you when they meet you. If you're running for a public office, if you're trying to do business, uh, you tell where you go to church. And when people move to your area, the first thing that they ask you after your name and what you do for a living is where to go to church. You know, that's how everybody gets categorized around here. So mm-hmm. it's very central to people's identity. But if you drive across the country, what you'll find is there's billboards all over the place advertising, uh, you know, that you're going to hell and that, uh, you know, that you're a sinner. And if you call this number, you know, 555 faith or whatever, and then they'll explain to you what you don't know about the Bible. And rural places all over the country are really the same way. Wherever you go, those people's lives revolve around their church community. So it's really everywhere. Yeah. In the United States, except the big cities outside of the South. But in the South, it's everywhere, literally. Yeah. Uh, is there any, that's crazy. Is there any specific ways that, like, just day to day, you know, whether you're going to get your coffee or going to dinner, that, like, will really impact your life? Well, you're sw- swimming in it. It's, it's like, um, it's like trying to describe the water to a fish. Um, mm. I, I had a day, for example, that um, I woke up in the morning and turned on my radio and realized that two of the local stations had gone under. You know, one was like a classic rock station, and I forget what the other one was. It was like a basic pop mix, you know, 60s, 70s, and 80s. They had both, both gone under, and they had gotten bought out by Christian stations. And we already had five or six for our area, so now there's more like 10. And everywhere you go, people are advertising their faith as a part of their identity. So there's, there's banks along the route to work that have a marquee out front that scrolls interest rates, but it also scrolls Bible verses along with the interest rates. And that's just a part of their identity. They, they advertise that, that this is run by Christians and therefore you mm-hmm. can trust us. And people wear their religion on their sleeves. Um, that same day, I turned on the radio and I began listening to uh, some debates between candidates for governor in my state. And the man who was running for re-election, who, by the way, is about to finish his term now, but the man who was running for re-election campaigned on a personhood amendment, which was, of course, politically charged. And he was you know, signaling that he was a strong conservative. He would fight abortion. He would fight a lot of other things. But the personhood amendment was going to redefine personhood so that it, it was at conception, which meant that a lot of things would become illegal. You know, including some kinds of birth control as well. And um, the way he said it was that if, if you were against him on this issue, you're working for the devil. And to, to see a, a, a 
gubernatorial candidate openly advertising that if you're against him, you're with the devil. It kind of gives you a feel for what it's like in Mississippi. Um, later that day, I went to get gas, and the gas station had loud contemporary Christian music playing overhead, really loud, like they're obnoxious about it. But there's three of those stations that I could stop at that are all Christian stations, I mean, uh, gas stations playing Christian stations. And then I went to my gym that day, and music playing in the gym was all contemporary Christian worship which is crazy when you're trying to bench press and they're talking about being weak and eating God for everything. And I'm just like, this is the worst workout music ever. Um, people proselytize in the gym locker room. There was this one guy who I used to call naked preacher because he would stay in the locker room for hours at a time, just talking to people. And he never wore clothes. He just sat on the bench with a little towel over his lap, talking to people. And it was always about Jesus, this and Jesus, that and he knew that I was an atheist. So what he would do is he would, look for ways to bring Jesus into every conversation. And it always ended with him saying something to the effect that I knew better than to be an atheist. And I knew that I was going to be in danger of my soul. And anyway, this is just normal, you know? Yeah. And then, and then when I come home to see my kids, they're very heavily into their faith as well, because their mother did not follow me out of okay. the faith. So they have been raised good Southern Baptists. You know, they go to church camp several times a year. They're on staff sometimes. They go to a Baptist college. You know, they're very they're very heavily in that culture. So that makes for a, a point of attention for me. There's a lot of my thought life I can't really share with them because they would find my perspectives. They do find my perspectives threatening. You know, yeah. it's difficult to know that your parents think differently from you on really central things like that. And so. Yeah. That's another point of tension is if you happen to be someone who leaves the faith, most everybody that you know and love probably is still in the faith. And if you're evangelical, they find it's, they feel it's their responsibility to win you back. Mm. So what ends up happening is for a long time, they try to proselytize until they finally realize that it's not working or, or you put down your foot and say, you have to stop doing this because it's going to make me want to not talk to you. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty common for us as well. Yeah, that, that must be really tough because, I mean, you coming from a Christian standpoint, you kind of understand where they're coming from and talking. I have, I have not only heard everything that they have to say, but I have said everything they have to say, and I've probably said it better. I mean, I've, I've actually taught people how to do what they're doing to me. Yeah. You know, and at that point, you just have to bite your tongue and let them finish. But I mean, it, it pervades so many things that it also works its way into things you wouldn't think that would have anything to do with religion. Like, for example, the classroom, which mm -hmm. technically there should be a separation between those things. But at three or four schools that I've taught, these are public schools, I've asked the biology teachers, how do you handle evolution in your class? And their answer is, we don't. We skip it. And I'm like, it's one of the most fundamental organizing principles of life sciences. You, you don't just skip natural selection and evolution, but they sort of touch on it and then run past it. You know, so a good example of what happened to me was I was teaching world history to seventh graders, again, at a, a public school in the Jackson area. And we had to cover early human civilizations, which go back to 10,000 or even 20,000 years old. We're talking about cave paintings that are 10,000 years old and hands started going up in the, audit, you know, in the, in the room. And this one little boy said, well, the earth is only 6,000 years old. And I said, really? What makes you think that? <laughs> I'm thinking, here it goes. And basically what he did was he disagreed with me and went home and sat down with his father. And they wrote out, according to the genealogies of the Bible, 
how many years the old, how many years old the earth must be based on every person in the list having a child at about age 100, which how they came up with that, I have no idea. But when he finished, it came out to about 6,000 years and asked him who did this because it wasn't his handwriting. He said, my dad did this. I said, okay. And I looked up his dad and he was one of the principals at one of the other schools. And <laughs> later on that day, I got called into the principal's office and she said, there's a mother of, of one of our students, not him, but a different one, who is threatening to sue the school for failing to separate church and state. Now think about that for a second. I said, wait, what you're saying is you want me to not teach this because it offends her, but, but I'm not separating church and state. And she said, well, she believes that what you're teaching is, is a different faith. It's a different religion, and she doesn't want that brought into the classroom. And I said, well, what are we going to do when we get to topics like this in the future? And she said, can you just go around it? You know, just don't, don't address that anymore. So that's, that's actually typical. That's a very typical kind of experience you would have. And, wow. in fact, that school system had been sued the year before by the American Humanist Association because they had a, an evangelistic meeting that was mandatory during their break period, and all the seniors had to attend. And a local church had some of their um, popular, most popular youth group leaders giving their testimonies about how Jesus had changed their life. And meanwhile, the people sitting in the audience tried to get up and leave because they didn't know it was going to be like a church service. But they were blocked from leaving by the administrators because it was mandatory. So somebody in the back finally got out their phone and just recorded the whole thing and sent it to the American Humanist Association. And they sued them and said, you can't do this. You can't have a mandatory evangelistic meeting at school in a public school. So the next week, they did it again with the juniors. And the AHA sent another letter and said, we're going to have to sue you for actual money if you do this again. The next week, they did it again with the sophomores. <laughs> so the AHA finally went through with the lawsuit. The school system lost the lawsuit, and the AHA agreed to get rid of the fees if they would just agree never to do anything like this again. So, of course, that lasted four or five months, and then they broke it again by having a preacher come and you know pray before this award ceremony where the same student who had recorded it the first time was there. So she was actually awarded $10,000 in that lawsuit, and then the school system made a big deal about it because now they're, now they're being victimized. You know, they're, they're being persecuted. Yeah. And I could keep going. So let me, let, me, let me finish with the school system, okay? Because my children go to the school. <laughs> oh, wow. Later on, and, and uh, later on uh, the next year, it was time to, um, to, to perform at halftime for the first football game. And the band had been practicing on a number all summer long. Mm -hmm. And it was to the tune of How Great Thou Art. I don't know if you know that hymn. It's a very famous old hymn, okay. How Great Thou Art. Everyone in our area knows that hymn. Well, they were going to march in order playing this song, and then at a certain part, certain part they, they get into a cross formation. And then at the end, they all bow onto one knee and put their heads down, and that's how they you know, end, like in a prayer position. And the school system waited until like a few days before to tell everyone what it was. And of course, the AHA sent a cease and desist and said, you can't do this. And so rather than using a backup number, which they had not prepared, they announced the day before the first football game, sorry, folks. We can't do our band performance during halftime because an atheist group is suing us. And all we were doing was a traditional Scandinavian folk tune, you know, because <laughs> apparently how great their art was based on that. Never mind the whole bowing and getting in the cross formation. That had nothing to do with it. So what ended up happening was, you know, this was a grandstanded moment. And um, the school system didn't perform at halftime. So all the audience sang how great their art 
during the halftime, you know, like as a group. And it was, of course, recorded and put all over Facebook. And everybody was so excited about it that it kind of created this wave of enthusiasm for the song. And before long, bumper stickers on cars everywhere all over town said, how great thou art, with this little artwork on it. And, and they were on the backs of cars. There were hats. There were shirts. There was merch. You know? <laughs> and people had um, taken shoe polish and had put how great thou art on their windows. And they did that for the rest of the school year because this was like a – they were being persecuted for this. You know, so this, is, this is the culture that I live in. Wow. Yeah, I'm so interested, Neil. So, I mean, you've painted a great picture of what it's like currently living in the Bible Belt, especially from an atheist perspective. And I'm just curious to know how I got to where I am. Yeah, just like from, you know, going from being an evangelical, you know, teacher to now kind mm-hmm. of having this other perspective. And how do you mm-hmm. kind of wrestle with the two, especially you mentioned your your children you know, are still very deep, devoted to their faith. Um, they are. So I, I'd like to go back and kind of talk about the transition. Sure. Okay. Well, I was raised Southern Baptist. I am from Jackson. I was born and raised here. Um, my family's third generation members of the largest church in the city, uh, First Baptist Jackson. And in fact, I've got a, a brother-in-law who's a senior staff member on church uh, at the church now. Um, my other sister was uh, president of the choir for a while. My family is very involved in this church is the point. And I was actually the first one to dive in when I was about 16. Um, raised in church, but you know, when you're evangelical, there has to be a moment where something clicks and you really, really commit yourself to Jesus. And that's, that's what happened with me. Um, I was at an evangelistic conference when I was just before I turned 16. And I mean, they hit us hard with things like fear of death, insecurity, identity search as a teenager, all the things that are pressure points for teenagers, loss of friends, you know, peer pressure. By the end, they were so worked up. We were also worked up that we, we flooded the aisles of the church and prayed with counselors and rededicated our lives to Jesus or accepted Jesus as our Savior for the first time, which most of us had already done that three or four times you know, at that point. But I became very serious about my faith at that point, and, and for about 20 years, it was my life. You know, it started out with me being more involved in that church, but they told me as a good Baptist, you're supposed to study the Bible and try to go back and reproduce essentially what the the first century church experience was like. That's kind of the way they talk. Well, I went and I read the New Testament and nothing like what we did was in there at all. So the next few years was me unpacking that and trying to understand how else could we do church. And so after about, let's see, five years in doing, you know, teaching Sunday school, being involved in church. I ended up leaving with my wife. At that point, we'd gotten married, and we moved to Atlanta to be a part of a house church movement, which would take some explaining, but, but it's, it's just meeting in homes. And pretty soon, I became one of the leaders of the group because I had a seminary education at that point, which I guess I skipped. Um, after college, my, my master's was, I mean, my bachelor's was in psychology, but I really wanted to do ministry. But everybody that I talked to said, you know, you ought to get a different degree than just a ministry degree when you're in college. And then when I went to seminary to get my, all my Bible, you know, education, Greek, Hebrew, all those things. Um, my intention was always to have a regular job during the day and to try to do any kind of ministry and teaching in my spare time. Not, not something I would make a living from, which again, I was reading the Bible and Paul, the apostle said that he, it was very important to him that he could minister the gospel free of charge. So he made tents during the day and that was his job. And then at night he preached and he ministered and he planted churches and that was a a boasting point for him. And I wanted that too. So I became a teacher and that's what I did for a living from the beginning. And then everything I did for ministry was what I did outside the classroom. So it continued to be my life for a long time. And we were in the house church for about 10 years. 
But the thing about being in a church situation like this is it's very experimental and you're, you're kind of, you're kind of brought to an existential extreme because unlike a Baptist church where all the, all the rituals are, are already worked out, the vocabulary is already set, the roles are already in place. In something like this, it's more organic and you're letting things develop as they go. But in doing that, you start to see the Bible in a different light. You start to realize that these people didn't know what they were doing. They were making it up as they went. You know, you start to see the sloppiness of the primitive church and you realize what it became eventually is nothing like what it was at first. And, and what it was then is so different from what it is now. I began asking critical questions, you know, about why do we do church the way it is? You know, why do we do an invitation during a service? Who started that? And we can actually go back to a point in history and figure out where that started. You know, where, where did people start doing a sinner's prayer? Where at the, at the end of an evangelistic service, you have this kind of set prayer where you talk about how you're a sinner and that you want to accept Jesus as your Savior and pray with someone. And it's almost a canned speech that you, that you go through. Well, that traces back to a time period. It was like the, the Second Great Awakening, you know, during the late 1800s. And there's, there's all these methods they're still using. For example, the night that I got saved, um, the evangelistic service featured a, a young girl being brought up on stage to talk about a boyfriend who had killed himself. And in front of 3,000 teenagers, they played soft music in the background while she had to try to explain what happened to her boyfriend. And of course, everybody's crying by the end of that. And everybody's so worked up that the emotions get us involved. And that goes all the way back to uh, Charles Finney and some of the other uh, people back in the 1800s who they would, they would put someone on what they called the hot seat in front of the whole church. And they began preaching to that person and just hitting them as hard as they could with like guilt-inducing kinds of preaching. And they would break down eventually. And everybody else watching would start to break down too because they were identifying with the person up front. All these methods I was seeing and realizing people have been doing this for centuries. And, and it's a tried and true method for getting people manipulated emotionally into believing things. But what about me? You know, how many different ways have I been emotionally manipulated? And I started to ask those kinds of questions. And so, so really what happened was education, I think, made the biggest difference. The more I studied the way religious movements work in seminary and in college, and the more I became interested in history in general, uh, the more I saw that these are, these are man-made things. These aren't supernatural, and you can reproduce them in lots of different settings. And it just kind of demystified my faith. And once I saw it as real people doing things that were so similar to every other walk of life, it just lost its magic, you know? And um, that was part of the unpacking process for me. But basically, the more serious I got about studying the Bible, the more I started to find all the holes in it. You know, I started to find how much of even the theology was completely irreconcilable. And I knew that, but you learn to deal with the tension. You know, you learn to deal with paradoxes and you just leave them there. You don't try to fix them because you're told that it's not for you to understand. You know, you, what do you know? You're just a, you're just a fallen, broken vessel that God wants to use. And you're supposed to be weak and you're supposed to not understand. So don't worry your pretty little head about that, you know, but I was okay with that because I was a curious person. So I kept asking questions until I realized the real problem is not that we can't figure these things out. The real problem is it doesn't work. It doesn't connect. Or at least that was my, my personal you know, deconstruction process. Some people call it deconstructing. It's a good mm -hmm. word. Um, sometimes it's deconversion. But the, it, it is deconstruction because it's realizing that the things that you believe have just descended straight from heaven to you, untouched by human hands, they actually are things that people put together. And you can see the contextual reasons for why they are the way they are. 
And the more they ask questions, the more that starts. It's like when Dorothy finally gets to see the wizard. Mm. And she's supposed to cower before you know, the, the, the balls of fire and the giant head until she realizes it's just a guy behind a curtain pulling levers you know, and, and twisting knobs. And, and it's all a show. And she finally saw that. But for me, it's worse. I realized I was the person behind the curtain. Because by the time you get in leadership of a church, you eventually learn how to just fall into these routines yourself until you're the person up front producing the experience. And so when the moment comes that you realize you're a part of this game, you've got, a, you've got an existential crisis now. What do you do? Especially if your income comes from this. You know, Your whole social life is built around your faith and around your ministry. So you could lose everything. And oftentimes people do unfortunately. It depends on what kind of background you come from. Obviously, the more permissive and liberal and open and progressive your faith is, the more they can accept you changing your mind about things and not feeling threatened. But when you're an evangelical Christian, change is bad. You know, free thinking is bad. Creativity is bad. <laughs> when, when I entered seminary, both my wife at the time and I scored really high on creativity in our personality tests. And the counselor said, it's really unusual to have high scores on creativity. And I said, but these are ministers, right? I mean, this is, this is a seminary and these are all ministers. And she said, yeah, but we don't really have creative people. And I thought, oh, you know, you're right. I went to a Presbyterian seminary because it was the one that was closest. And they really do not like an independent thought. Let's just put it that way. It's all about trying to mimic the thoughts of other people, you know, and that's, that doesn't work for me. <laughs> I'm what you call a free thinker in that sense. I have to I have to question myself all the time. So I don't know if that answered that question about my background. Yeah, absolutely. I was I was about 35 when I finally realized I didn't believe it anymore. Mm. And I had been a Christian for about 20 years. And at this point I had four children and my whole social life was built around the church. Yeah. So when the time came that I realized I couldn't do it anymore, I relocated my family back to Mississippi to be close to the rest of the family. And long story short, we didn't we didn't make it through it. The transition where I left the faith was just it was too much. There were there were a lot of issues we had to work through. It wasn't just this, obviously. There were other issues we had to deal with. But when you have totally different beginning points and frameworks for how to understand what a marriage should even look like, it's really hard to find a meeting of the minds. And we we sought help from a Christian therapist whose you know office was in a church. He was one of the ministers at a Baptist church. His his counseling degrees were from seminary. You know, so obviously every time we tried to get to a, a point of tension between me and my wife, the answer was always Jesus, you know, mm. and, and that doesn't work for me. You know, I can't use the same reference point. So that's, that's a struggle is that if you're from an evangelical background, there really isn't neutral ground. You know, there's, there's right and there's wrong and it's binary. <laughs> I spent about two hours today on the phone with a guy whose wife is, still a believer, still very devout evangelical, and their children are finally reaching the age that they're going to have to start talking about heaven and hell and salvation and all that. And he's an atheist, and he has been for a few years now. He used to be a minister as well. I think he was a pastor, a worship pastor. And they've got to figure out what to do now because he doesn't want his children proselytized. He doesn't want them being told that they're going to go to hell if they don't believe the right things. But that is what they're going to hear from their grandparents, from their mother, from everybody. And so now they got to figure out what to do. And so the solution, they go see a therapist at a church, you know, because what do you do? We're, 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 there's no neutral ground. I don't really know what the solution to this is, but I will say this. I gave him one piece of advice. Dale McGowan 
wrote a book called In Faith and in Doubt. And it's just a treatment of several different kinds of mixed faith marriages where the husband and the wife are in different places on the spectrum. And it's not always Christian and non-Christian. It's, it's everything else. You know, it's all kinds of mixtures. But one of the things he points out is that when you've got one person who deconverts from the Christian faith, the amount of tension that they encounter is usually a function of how, how evangelical, how fundamentalist the faith was to begin with, which you know, seems like a no-brainer once you say it. But that's part of the sticking point is that when it comes time to try to work through these differences, there has to be some mutual agreements, compromises. But compromise is a bad word in some places, and and with a lot of evangelicals, it is a bad word. It's not something you want to be found guilty of. Let's put it that way. But when it comes to marriage, I mean, it's all about compromises. So it's it's a tough it's a tough road to hoe, and I really felt for him. It was it was actually a very emotional conversation for me to relive that today. Yeah, it's I think it's it's so hard. Yeah, just uh, to think that because coming from a I used to be a Jehovah's Witness in that religious standpoint. Is that right? Okay. And you, when you see somebody who's not a, doesn't share your beliefs, you think of them differently as just mm-hmm. like, not just as your peer, but then, so when somebody who did share your beliefs then changes, mm-hmm. it, it's this weird block where, well, I knew, I thought I, they were my peer. And then you just, your brain doesn't even know what to do anymore. Uh, you gotta go back and re rethink everything. Yeah. And so what would you say some of the big misconceptions that you know in your culture down there where it's like you said like swimming you're swimming in this uh kind of christianity and the where it's everywhere in the south what would you say some of their misconceptions about you being atheists are well the biggest problem is that evangelical theology teaches that goodness and virtue comes from the indwelling of the holy spirit that you as a regular joe person cannot produce virtue on your own. You're hopelessly fallen, broken, distorted, warped, sick, um, metaphorically dead in your heart, right? That's everyone born that way. And the only way to get out of that is to trust in Jesus. So all good things about a person then grow out of that faith. So if a person doesn't have that faith, how are they going to have anything of virtue? You know, that's the way they think. That's what they're told to think. And it's not... They don't start with talking about everybody else. It starts with they themselves. It's about you yourself learning to embrace that you need Jesus to be good. And we've rehearsed the script before. Um, we, we learned how to talk like that. We learned how to talk like we were worthless without help from God. But that kind of self-destructive, self-loathing talk, it really eats at your sense of you know, self-ownership and agency. And so eventually you learn to embrace that. But then you look at the rest of the world and think, well, then anybody else who doesn't have this can't possibly be able to be a good person, a reliable person, a true person. And think about a marriage, for example. There's another problem. You know, how, are I, how am I ever going to trust a person whose faith isn't the same as mine or who doesn't even have one? If you believe that your faith is the source of all goodness, then an atheist is an immoral person by nature, and they don't trust you. So what happened with me as a teacher for example, was that um, I was in the middle of a history lesson, totally unrelated to this other stuff. And one of my students raised her hand in class and said, Mr. Carter, uh, is it true that you're an atheist? And I had not told anybody about this at all. I didn't even know where she got it from. I came to find out later, she had been stalking me on Facebook. And um, actually her mother had been. And um, they, they were looking at stuff that I had liked and saw that one of the things I had liked was an atheist page. 
And so she came to school the next day to grill me about it in front of all the students. Well, I changed the subject. I said, well, you know, we don't discuss our faith at school because as a public school, I'm, you know, a public school teacher, I'm a representative of the state. So we remain neutral on matters of faith. And her response to that was, why didn't you just say no? Every other teacher would say, no, I'm not an atheist. They, they wear their religion on their sleeves. You know, whenever a student's having a hard day, they bring them out of the hallway and they pray with them. You know, that, that, that's a very common thing. So for me to not go ahead and say, oh, sure, I'm a Christian, immediately it began spreading that I was an atheist. A few weeks later, one of my principals, the same one that had called me into her office earlier in the year, she came into my classroom before school and told me that I was not allowed to discuss religion or politics in my class for the rest of the year. Now, I was teaching history. So imagine how that's even going to work. In fact, the next chapter I was supposed to teach was on uh, Christianity. And two chapters later was going to be Islam. You know, we were supposed to spend three days talking about these things. And now she wants me to skip them. What ended up happening was they moved me out of my history class in the middle of the school year and put me in a math class, which I was certified for. So they could do that. And I decided, you know what? I'm going to just stay with math because I'm never going to get in trouble with math. Nobody's going to say that I'm trying to proselytize the kids, but that's, that's what they were thinking. They were thinking, principal was thinking, I can't let my parents think that I'm letting an atheist teach their students, which she brought up, by the way. In that same conversation, I said, why am I not allowed to talk about these things? And she folded her arms and she said, because there's talk in the community that you told your students you're an atheist. Now, at this point, if I had a recording of this conversation, I would immediately be able to go to the Equal Opportunity you know, commission and get some sort of like a punishment for the school or censure, but I didn't have anything recorded. And so when I texted her, or t I emailed her later to ask for clarification, she dodged the question and wouldn't put anything in print about it. You know, so they knew how to play the game and not get in trouble for this, but she just came right out and said it. It's because people are talking about it and saying you're an atheist and I don't want to deal with this, you know, because it's making parents angry. I mean, you know, we've got a mother trying to sue the school just because I'm teaching evolution then yeah, they're, they're going to have trouble with an atheist teaching their, their students. So one problem is the whole belief that people can't be good without God. So that means I'm automatically untrustworthy. I must be an awful person. I mean, who knows? Maybe I'm a rapist. Maybe I'm a murderer. I mean, I'm, I, could, I could be guilty of anything if I don't have Jesus. You know, they, they learn to think that way. So that's why they distrust me. I'm very othered by this. But then another thing is that really – the Christian faith prov provides a community, a source of community for everyone. So say you move to Jackson and you want to get in the insurance business. First thing you do, they tell you, is to join the church because that's how you're going to make all your business connections. It's just like joining the, the country club, you know, if you need to get to know those people. You, you join a church, that's how you make all your business relationships. That's how people know that you're one of them and they, that they can trust you. Well, so what happens when you leave that? You don't have that anymore. you got to find something else. And most people who don't live in very thick religious places – they think, well, you can just get a hobby, you know, and you just, just, you know, take up biking, cycling or you know, running or whatever. And then, you, then you've got something that's not about God. You don't understand. In Jackson, Mississippi, if you join a running club, they're going to have Bible studies. They're going to pray before they run. They're going to, they're going to bring it into everything they do because that's how they're taught to do it. So you, you are really separating yourself from everybody if you actually tell anybody that you don't believe any of it. You know, it, it's, it's an identifying marker for them. So that's another thing. And of course, there's all the political issues now. Um, I'm really glad that I wasn't trying to deconvert now in the midst of all this. But I imagine a lot of people are probably struggling with how to understand political disagreements. Because discourse in America has gotten to be so 
belligerent, so combative. There is no neutral ground anymore for anybody. Everything's just either black or white. I don't know how to. I don't know how to have conversations around that. If you can't even agree on common things, common facts about the world, there's nothing to discuss. So it's getting worse. I feel like it's really getting worse. I don't know what to do about that. Yeah, it definitely seems that there's because people are worried about, especially in sometimes we don't want to anger other people, and so people start beginning to worry about. Well, I just don't want to anger this person, so I'm just not going to talk to them. I guess I, I won't. Oh yeah, they'll avoid you, and they don't mean to do that. You end up. Well, take me for example. All my friends were ministers, so if you want to hang out with them, you're going to eventually talk about the church. But what if you know that one of you is an atheist? You're going to be so self-conscious about it because they're not going to share your same perspective on the things they're talking about. So they're not going to bring it up around you, right? And so you end up we're running out of things to talk about. You could talk about sports. Or the weather, and sucks to be you if you don't have any sports that you know a lot about or care about, you know. But that's that's just such a key part of life for everybody. Here you are. You're someone who, um, at least within your general community or the people you're around, I'm assuming that you know it is hard to find common ground when everything is centered in religion. Um, so, so I'm curious to know, you know, as an atheist living in do? the Bible Belt, what what do you do for community now, and how has that Kind of shifted your perspective of how you just connect with other people. You know, it's funny. I went from having a virtual relationship with an imaginary being to having a virtual relationship with a whole bunch of people on Facebook. You know, it, 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 at least, but at least the people on Facebook are actually talking back to me. Um, local community is a lot harder to find because of where I am. You know, it was kind of like the dating world. I've been fortunate in that um, I have, I have remarried, by the way, I've remarried someone who is herself a deconvert from evangelical faith. We understand a lot of each other's backgrounds, mm. but I had to go to a different state to find a person that I really clicked with because everyone around me, their, their faith was such a central part of their identity that you can't even get past the first conversation before they want to know some things about you. And in my case, um, it's worse because I actually started coming out. Um, sometimes people don't like, uh, I guess it's kind of appropriating language of the LGBT community, but it really, it, it kind of works the same way in, in places where I live. Um, it's just as bad as coming out as not being straight for mm -hmm. them. And it's still, that's still a shame here. That's still a, a, sh a, um, a shamed thing. And you're outed for that. So, so coming out kind of is the right language for it. Um, after I had already lost. Okay. So back to the job where I got moved to math at the end of the year, you know, my numbers had gone up, the student scores had gone up, and I assumed they were going to hire me back for the next year, and they didn't. They didn't bring me back the next year, which was upsetting because my children went to that school, and I really wanted to be where they were. It meant a lot to me. Um, I put up with a lot to be where they were, but um, they didn't want me to come back. And when I asked them why, they wouldn't give me an answer. Just no answer. And when, when it's your first year to teach for a certain school system, like even if you've taught for 20 years, if it's your first year at that system, they don't have to bring you back the next year. It's like a probationary period. So they took advantage of that and didn't ask me back. Um, at that point, when I started working at a new school and I was teaching math again, I thought, I might as well just start talking about this now. you know. And so I started a blog. After I lost the job, I started a blog just to sort of unpack some of my struggles. And over time, that got enough attention that Soon everybody knew that I was an atheist. So this added a new element. I wasn't just a person who was apart from the community. I'm now a person that people saw sometimes on TV or on the internet. Something might pop up on a YouTube video. There was, a, um, there was an interview of a pastor, uh, interview an atheist at church day 
uh, event that happened a few years back. And I was able to find a Church of Christ minister who was willing to interview me in front of his church and ask me a whole bunch of questions about this very thing. How do Christians misunderstand atheists? And I talked through some of these things, like about the morality issue, about them thinking that we think Satan is real. Like they think that we worship Satan. We don't even think Satan's a real thing. And you'll probably find out from, you know, Church of Satan folks that a lot of them don't think he's real either. It's it's a it's a satire. You know, it, it's it's a it's a parody religion in some cases for some people as a way of highlighting what's wrong with enforcing your faith on everyone else. You know, not everybody looks at it that way, but a lot of folks do. I'm yeah. sure you'll discover that. But um but for me, you know, that was part of the struggle was once people knew that I had to identify publicly as an atheist, now I'm getting pressure from people, you know, to, um, I'm, I'm becoming a target for evangelism for people, even people who had done it before and had dropped it after a while because they realized it wasn't going anywhere. They started coming back again. Once my visibility was increasing at one point, I ended up appearing on a CBS thing, CBS Sunday morning. And I mean, like that's something my parents watch on Sunday mornings. So for their son to show up. <laughs> on national television was a big deal and it was upsetting, you know? Mm. So I have, I've drawn a target around myself a little bit and, and I suppose I should, I should say that I asked for that to some degree and deal with it, but it made it even harder to mm. uh, find people that, you know, wanted to get to know me. But to my point about the LGBT thing, I had one cousin who was after a number of years decided to come out and tell the family that he was gay. And of course we all, we all knew this was, Told him, you know, when we, when we said, I really want you to know this about me, we said, yeah, we knew that. <laughs> we all knew it. We just, we just haven't talked about it. He wanted to have individual conversations with each of us so that he could kind of talk through how his grasping and gra grappling with who he was was something that really mattered to him. And he wanted us to appreciate the difficulty and how much he had worked through it, I guess, as a way of preemptively making sure people weren't going to try to change his mind. But he saved me for last because, you know, I'd been to seminary. He knew I'd been an elder in a church. He knew that I had had, had ministry background. And so I guess he thought I would be the hardest sell. But by the time he got to me, somebody else in the family warned him that I'd already left the faith. I was an atheist. So he changed tacks. And when he met with me for coffee, he brought out a stack of transcripts of, of sermons from his pastor. And he wanted me to read them because he said that, his pastor had helped him work through his own sexual identity, and, and, and he really owed thanks to God for the fact that he had come to accept who he was, and he wanted me to also share his faith so that maybe I too could work through whatever it was that was making me lose my faith. And so he saw me as somebody that was broken that needed to be fixed, and I thought this is a fascinating turn of, of tables because with everyone else, he was meeting to make sure they would accept him for who he was, but when he met with me... He wanted to talk about how I needed to change to become like him. So it is it, in some places you can actually be below, you know, LGBT community in the totem pole because at least at least in in Jackson there are gay communities where a lot of leading members of our city, uh, leading businessmen, restaurateurs, you know, artists of several kinds are well known and very out open gay men and women, but not atheists. That's not okay. That's not acceptable. Mm. It's it's crazy how the times have changed with that. Um, yeah, that's that's local to here. I think outside of the South, this probably wouldn't make any sense. It would sound ridiculous, but here it, it makes perfect sense. It's it's the most central, most important thing about you to people here is you you have to have faith, and if you don't, you can't be a good person. You can't be trusted. Yeah. Hmm. With the um, so what? I finished that question. Oh yeah. I mean, remind me again. What was I talking about? I got a. Subject, sorry, I'm a teacher, so I chase rabbits for a living. We, we're just talking about community. I mean, I, I think that it also leads into. I didn't answer that question, did I? 
Well, real quickly though, Facebook's the best way around here. That's how we. That's how I've met most of my friends. It's how I met Lori, my wife. Um, but again, the problem with social media is number one, it means that a lot of people you form relationships with don't even live anywhere near you. Mm-hmm. And you know, sometimes you need to be able to sit down and hang out with somebody, watch a movie, you know, go see a game, whatever, just sit and chill. I mean, what if you're sick? Who's going to bring you something to eat? Who are your kids going to play with? All these different things that are already set in place when you're in a church. When you're not in a church, you have to find some other way to make that happen. And so atheists will sometimes find meetup groups, you know, or they'll start a Facebook group. Like the one that, that I joined up when I recently, when I first came out, had about 80 or 90 people in it when I first joined and they were scattered all over the state. You know, most of them didn't live in the city in Jackson, but over the next three or four years, it got up to about 700 people. So it got to be pretty big. And every once in a while we'd get together and we'd do stuff together on purpose, but it took a lot of effort. And without the mechanism of church in place, um, you have to really be deliberate about getting together with people. And that takes discipline. I mean, you know, people have tried a lot of different things and there's Oasis, there's Sunday assembly. There's um, different kinds of free thought groups that you know use Meetup as their way of meeting, and um, each one of them has a different approach to how to make community happen. Um, Sunday assembly, for example, almost perfectly copies the church service structure, but instead of talking about Jesus and God, it's it's just it's life. It's humanistic themes. You know, they even have bands that lead not worship, but they'll lead songs that you can sing along with. You know. The Sunday Assembly in Nashville is amazing because it's all musicians. You know, um, when they have national and international conferences, they always get the Nashville folks to, to lead worship. It's not really worship, but you know what I'm saying. It's like <laughs> atheist church. Of course, for somebody like me that that's been burnt out on church, that's the last thing I'm going to want. I'm not going to want to go and sit, you know, in a pew. And if they make me clap and sing, I'm leaving. You know, I've, <laughs> I've done this. I've done this too many times, and I've I've sat and listened to people talk to me for long periods of time, and I'm kind of done with it. You know, so a lot of us are not really looking for that either. So we really have to get creative to make community work. And heaven forbid, if you get involved in a community and then there's a breakup, you know, where like you're dating somebody and then you break up, and now now you you kind of lose friends in the divorce, so mm-hmm. to speak. And that happened to me, actually. I spent a lot of time building a network, a local network of friends. And then after a a bitter breakup, I lost a bunch of friends. And Mm. so start over again. I mean, it's, it's, everything's just a lot harder when, when you have to do everything from scratch. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. What's, um, speaking of things that are a lot harder, what about on the other end? Uh, even though the, you know, where the area you're at being an atheist is so hard, what in the ways, what are ways that being an atheist has really benefited you? Would you say? Not having to, um, not having to force everything I learn into a mold. Um, the world is messy. The world doesn't make sense most of the time, if we're being really honest. And um, you know, I, I don't know if it's Mark Twain or if everybody just attributes it to Mark Twain, who said that um, the difference between real life and fiction is fiction has to make sense. Yeah, and he's right. You know, in real life, most things are very confusing and complicated, and um, and that's a lot of work. But but you can have a more accurate picture of the world if you don't start out with the conclusion already predetermined. But as a Christian, that's what I did. I always started every every investigation with the conclusion in mind where I needed to end up because it was our it was prescribed for me. So that means that you're actually going to have to do everything you're doing when you're asking questions about the world around you with like one hand tied behind your back. 
But once you let go of some of the dogma, you actually can ask broader questions and follow the evidence wherever it leads. And that kind of freedom is very freeing for me because what ends up happening is I feel like my model of the world, my mental model is, I mean, it's, it's never going to be right 100%. You know, you're always just going to get a little bit less wrong. And I'm okay with that. That kind of intellectual humility is something that I've always wanted to have anyway. And it's easier to have that when you don't think that somebody has come from heaven to tell you the way things are. You know, it's a lot easier to have epistemological humility because you know you don't know everything and you know you don't have like a, a, a straight line to somebody who does know everything. You know, it, it, it allows you to open your mind to a lot of possibilities, even though it does mean a lot more work. Um, but also it means that your mental model of the world is going to be less at odds with the way the world really is. And that's one of the problems with me when I was still a believer, and a lot of people still struggle with this. They're told the way the world is supposed to be, but the world isn't that way. And there's an explanation for it. The explanation is people are bad, we broke the world, and that's why the world's messed up. So they've got an explanation for it, but they're also going to have to live in the feeling that they're at odds with the way the world is all the time. And as an evangelical Christian, you're taught to believe that you're not really of this world. You're not supposed to feel at home in this world. You're destined for another world. So you spend your whole life preparing for that world, which means this world gets neglected. You know, your health gets neglected. Sometimes the relationships are neglected because you're not really focused on making the relationships themselves healthy. You just want the relationships to honor God, whatever that means. But that means a lot of things don't even get talked about because they get messy. So you just leave them untalked about. It's not great for open communication when you have the constraints of faith telling you exactly how you're supposed to feel about things, you know, and it, it, you can't make people feel a certain way. They can try, but it's like holding a beach ball down under water. You know, it's just going to pop up somewhere else, somewhere you didn't mean for it to. And that's what yeah. ends up happening. You can just see it happen all the time. So that's another benefit I think is that I can be more honest with myself about how messy life is. And it's not always encouraging, but I'd rather, I'd rather have it be true than it be encouraging, you know? Um, it's like in the movie Big Fish. I don't know if you ever saw that. I haven't seen but that at one. The end of, oh, it's a great movie. At the end, the son has to grapple with the fact that his father believes a lot of things that turn out to not be really true. Mm. And stories he told about himself weren't true. And the father wanted the son to be okay with that. You know, just let me have my stories. Let me have my identity. And the son wanted the truth, you know. So they, they were always at odds with each other. It, he eventually mm. learned to understand how his dad thought. But I would see that as a benefit. Just, just letting go of the need to make everything fit a mold really makes a difference. And, and I think it's freeing. And I, I have less confusion about the way things turn out. Now that I don't have unrealistic expectations about how the world is supposed to work, I can accept the world the way it is. I can accept other people the way they are. And I don't have to make them change. I don't have to make them think that if they don't fix something about themselves, something bad's going to happen when they die. And obviously the loss of fear of hell is pretty nice too, because that was, that was a psychologically abusive thing to believe in. But to, to, to wrap that talk up, the other problem is if you're not of this world, that means you're waiting for another one. Well, what we've got is a whole lot of people who believe the world is supposed to end. It's supposed to turn worse and just because it's going to be thrown away. You know, their theology teaches them that God's not going to fix the world. He's going to trash it and start over again, which means a lot of things don't make sense. Like, how do you, how do you have a political outlook if you believe that anything that you try to do to make the world better now is just going to be thrown away? You know, you don't polish brass on a sinking ship. 
mm-hmm. is something that the old preachers used to say. And it's because their, their eschatology, their, their belief about the ends of the world, keep them from really doing things that would make this world better. <laughs> they're actually okay with it getting bad. And if people suffer, they're okay with that to some degree because suffering is, is, is a, a path to God. You know, it's a way that God wakes you up so that you'll realize you need him. Think of what that does to psychological health. When you believe that suffering is a good thing, that you should embrace it because it's going to make you more dependent on God. I mean, it really messes up a lot of relationships when you think that way. And when it comes to asking big, big political questions and philosophical questions about the world, it changes how you view things if you think it's all going to be thrown away. You're not trying to save the world. You're, you're just waiting for it to be trashed and for God to start over again, hit reset, you know, reboot, like, like respawn if you're playing Minecraft. It's okay if it all just gets destroyed. You'll just it'll start over again one day. It's okay. Yeah, yeah. It's, um... I went all over the place. I chase a lot of rabbits. I apologize. But oh, no. <laughs> no I, that's great. Keep, please My keep poor students. rabbits. Yeah. Um, you talked about it being messy, this like where as when you were Christian, it's very – it's encouraging, but you don't get to see the messy side of things. And you also talked earlier about your creativity. Have you been able to kind of chase any sort of your creativity or enjoy that more with the? Novel? Yeah, I, I do. Um, I have a lot of learning to do about how to find an, an outlet for it. Writing is the yeah. main outlet for me. Um, I'm not a musician and I'm not a painter, um, but I love to write. And it's it's only a matter of time before I branch out into other kinds of writing. So far, it's mostly been unpacking you know, my deconversion. And, and the reason I've continued to do that is not because I'm really still doing that on a daily basis. It's more that I keep meeting people who are on the, on the, on the front end of that. And they're still trying to work their way out. And I know what they're going through. Like the friend I talked to today, I know what's ahead of him. Mm-hmm. And I want to try to help him understand what to prepare for. Um, it's almost like a, it's, it's almost like atheist pastoring <laughs> sometimes, you know, um, because the thing is people, we need mentors. We need people that have been through things to explain what to expect, you know? And again, there's not a structure for that set up. It'd be very helpful if there were, but, um, I just lost my train of thought. What were we talking about? Sorry. You started talking about your writing. Um, yeah. The writing, eventually I would like to write, uh, maybe some plays. I might write a novel at some point. Um, I have a lot of ideas of things that I would like to do. And I do think that because, because my framework and outlook on life has changed as much as it has, I feel like the guardrails are off mm-hmm. and there's more freedom to go whatever direction really is, it works, which, which wherever, whatever is sparking, as they say, you know, I mean, creativity really needs the freedom to follow its inspirations. And that's how I learn. I learn through obsessions. You know, become obsessed with one thing for six months or a year until I know everything I can think of about it. You know, everything there is to learn about it is available. And then I move on to the next obsession. But this is this works for me, you know, but there has to be a freedom for that. And I do have that. So once I'm not working full time as a teacher at a job that is emotionally draining as mine is, and once the children are a little bit older, I expect to have more time to create. Yeah. You know, but the way things are right now, I live in Mississippi and I'm a teacher, so the income is an ongoing problem. And I have four children, so yeah. needless to say, <laughs> I'm always broke. But eventually, when I'm not tutoring during my spare time and shuttling people around to extracurriculars or whatever, eventually I hope to have more time to, to make more things, including about three or four books that I want to write. Um, my next project that I would like to do is, um, again, still, work, still working on deconversion to try to wrap that up, that mm-hmm. phase for me. I want to I want to put together a um, 
a collection of stories from people who have worked their way out of their faith, much like what y'all are probably encountering through this. Um, and I want to have people tell their own stories and put it in print in a way that is easy to follow. So that, that's another project upcoming and who knows what happens after that. I have other things I'm interested in too, but I don't know how far you want to get into those. <laughs> no, it's great. For example, I, I, what, what? Go, give us an I'll tell one other thing. This, this is, so one of the things you have to unpack as a non-believer, as a non-Christian, is you start to ask questions also about sexuality, for example relationships, you know, personal identity, all kinds of questions. But with sexuality, there really are a lot of, um, a lot of what I would call unhealthy strictures on sexual freedom. And it's not only true for people from non-straight orientations, but even people who are just, you know, plain old straight folks. I think the way that we have approached sexuality is so constrictive because we were taught to believe that, I mean, I was taught to believe that sex is basically an object lesson for a person's relationship with God. I know that sounds weird if you're not accustomed to hearing that, but in a metaphorical way, sex is created as an, as an illustration of something spiritual. You know, the relationship between Christ and the church, for example. Um, so everything is couched in religious terms, but once you get out from under that, you realize there's, there's a much broader range of expression involved in sexuality. And that's, that's pretty fascinating to me too. And at one point I started a blog about that called Removing the Fig Leaf. I was very proud of that. And um, it, was, it was cooking for a while. But um, one of the things you run into is with any movement, there's politics. And the atheist secularist movement has its own political um, – structures in place that if you run afoul of the wrong people, you end up on a blacklist. And that ended up happening. I ended up falling in the middle of a, of a, of a fight between two different groups. And I got caught in the crosshairs, you know, in the crossfire. That's part of why I'm not really involved much in the atheist community. They have conferences, they have a lot of things they do uh, together. And I don't really participate because once you get into it, you realize a lot of the stuff that you think is actually a problem for church. It's really just humans in general. It doesn't matter where you go, all the problems you had in church, are also happening in the atheist communities. I mean, identical problems, you know? I mean, take like some of those groups that I mentioned a little while ago that have more deliberate ways of getting together. They've had all kinds of implosions as organizations because the bigger a group gets, the more messes they have. That's just human nature, you know? We're, we're messy. We're, we're primates who just recently learned to stand up and cook our food, basically. So of course we're gonna have messy relationships. The organizations are gonna be very, very sketchy, but that's one of the things I discovered. Once I branched out into sexuality in particular as a writing subject, you discovered there's a lot of judgment about sexuality, even in the atheist community, because I mean, you know, it's as vulnerable as you get when you're naked. So everything that happens when you're naked is, is, is touchy <laughs> anyway. So I just had to cover that because that's another thing. It's a passion of mine, but it's one of those things that there's so many pitfalls and ways to go wrong because people, people are, people can be awful. I can say yeah. that as an atheist. I don't have to believe in fallenness to believe that people can be awful. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a wide spectrum of what there it can be like. Um, Interrupted you, sorry. Oh no, I not at all. I think maybe just to kind of start wrapping up, start wrapping it up. What are some things that you'd really want listeners to like specific things that you'd want to take them to take away from? Okay. This um, you know, pe people who are still devout and still believers, I, I would, I would love for them to learn to respect our own, um, our own voices. You know, they don't know me better than I know myself. That's one of the first things that I end up telling them. In fact, when I did that interview with the pastor, I did a list of 10 things that Christians don't understand about atheists. I mean, you can Google it. It's, it's a talk that's on YouTube at this point. 
And, um, and that's one of the things that comes up is that the Bible tells the people who believe the Bible that they can see into the souls of others, basically. You know, there's a place where, where the Apostle Paul says that people who are polytheists, you know, that worshipped animals and beasts and different kinds of things from his day, that deep down they really knew that his God was the right God. It's in Romans 1. It's a really presumptuous thing to say, but people today read that and they say the same thing. When I say I don't believe in God, their response is, yes, you do. You really do. You just don't know it. You know, let me tell you why you're thinking incorrectly about this. That's really insulting because they don't know me better than I know me, but they think they do because they were taught to believe that way. They were taught to believe that, that I'm so broken, I can't possibly speak for myself. So one thing I would say is I would wish they would just stop that. <laughs> you know, I wish they would consider the possibility that Paul could have been wrong because he was a man. And, and I think there are lots of things Paul was wrong about. Um, and maybe maybe a little bit of branching out into progressive or liberal Christianity would help open up some some of those questions. Um, I was really heartbroken last year when um, Rachel Held Evans passed away. She was a, a writer that represented progressive Christianity, and she was such a great middle ground, middle voice for people who were struggling with faith and doubt. And she she died of a, a it was some kind of a an infection that went went wrong. It was awful. It was heartbreaking because she was so good at speaking for that middle ground. But um, I, I do a lot of listening to them, people who are trying to bridge the gap between faith and non-faith, because many times they work to understand both. And I think I would encourage people to find those kinds of people, find the people who are doing what you're doing, actually, who are, who are creating conversations so that they can think differently about other people, because you don't know how they think. You may think you do, but most of the time what we do is we project ourselves onto others and we assume other people think like us, and they probably don't. You know, and most of our misunderstandings come from that. So just learning to be a better listener would be a big help. But that requires being humble. You know, it requires you thinking that you don't know everything. But unfortunately, many people think they do, you know, and they, they don't take credit for it themselves. They think that God gave them the knowledge. But, you know, I just want people to stop and go, what if I'm wrong? You know, hmm. they ask me that all the time. What if what if you're wrong? I, f- I think about that all the time. That's how I got to be where I am. But I don't think they really think enough about whether they could be wrong and, and how they would want to talk differently to people if it turns out that they not maybe not wrong about everything but just wrong about some things a little bit of humility would go a long way um in practice rather than just you know in words but um encouraging people to ask more questions of people like me let us let us talk in our own words about what we think rather than only reading what other christians have to say about us like the worst example i can think of and i can finish with this is the most popular post i ever wrote was a review of the movie god's not dead I don't know if you've ever seen it. It has stars Kevin Sorbo, and he plays an angry atheist who is mm. every stereotype of an atheist you've ever heard of in church. In fact, there are tracks, Jack Chick tracks, that they leave in gas stations that have the, the, you know, the gospel boiled down to little cartoons. And the, the atheist professor is a trope. It's, it's actually a, it's a, it's a meme that's been around for decades. So he just acted that out in a full feature film. It was awful. It's like – Everything that they misunderstand about an atheist, like, for example, that this guy said he was an atheist, but he really did believe in God, and he was angry at God because his mother had died of cancer years before or something. You know, all those kinds of misunderstandings are commonplace, and I would love it if people could disabuse themselves of those notions. Well, there you have it. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of What the Faith, learning more about the Bible Belt, Neil's experience, and many other atheists currently living in the South. If you'd like to keep up with everything we're doing at What the Faith, be sure to check out our website at www.whatthefaith.space. 
Once again, that's www.whatthefaith.space. We hope you have a great rest of your week, and we'll see you again next week for a new episode.